I am Yatsuk Kolashinsky, FIU Radcliffe's Art and Design Incubator's Tech Conversations host. Today we're going to speak with Elio Morillo, who is a system engineer in NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. So welcome to our program, Elio. Thank you guys for having me. Great. Really excited to share whatever I can in this uh, brief podcast with you. Elio, reading your, your story on NASA profile, I found out the story about your Lego blocks, that you started as a kid with Lego blocks and you're making your spaceship. So tell us about your journey to NASA and maybe let's start with those Lego blocks. <laughs> sure, yeah. So I uh, didn't, didn't have all that much growing up and a lot of those Legos were actually hand-me-downs from uh, an older brother that kept them around. We're 17 years apart and he still had some in a box somewhere. And along with that, you know, Legos are pretty expensive. So ended up just having a few here and there. And over time, I had a, a box of different kinds of blocks. And with that, I would build all kinds of things, including spaceships. And that, you know, sparked imagination. I had um, a weekend family, as I call them, where I would go and watch cable and access the Internet because I didn't have that at home. So with that, I learned about shows like Gundam, Dexter's Laboratory. You know, I wanted to be Dexter. I wanted to be in a big spacesuit flying through space. That, that was the dream. And slowly but surely, uh, as life progressed, and that's its own long story, which I'm actually currently writing a book for, um, I end up at the University of Michigan, where, where is where I study mechanical engineering and I stick around to get my master's in space systems design. And through all that time, I was extremely involved in a group called the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, which led me to a convention, a national convention. It's a, a, a big organization here in the United States. And at that convention, I met my current boss and we got along very well. This was now, that was, that was in 2015. I started at JPL in 2016 and have been working in the Mars mission, the Mars rover Perseverance, and Ingenuity, the helicopter, ever since. Yeah, tell us about your job at NASA. I think that's a good time to segue. You said helicopter, you said rover. What do you do there? Yeah, I've been in, in very uh, in very dynamic environments. When I joined, we were in the midst of what we call the testing campaign, to put it simply, where we're verifying and making sure that all the hardware behaves as intended as we designed it. And that includes the hardware and software interactions. So back then we're still building the rover, putting together the flight vehicle, and at the same time, building the earth models that we still use to this day for continuous testing and debugging, right? So when we run into issues, because we do run into issues, uh, we try and use these different Earth models and, and venues to replicate these bugs and try to work around them, um, propose fixes that then we ultimately send to Mars so that the rover can use. And in that, in, in that environment, I've had the incredible opportunity of working with many subsystems. So you can imagine, right? This is a $2.5 billion mission. Um, it's a very complex system. And within that system, you have many different subsystems. And you have a massive team of people working across instruments, uh, the computers slash avionics, the software, uh, the mechanisms, the different structures, and how all of those things interact 
Not only that, you have to consider, of course, the vehicle that we send to space, but then also the ground systems we, we keep here on Earth to interact with the vehicle. So there's a lot of interfaces where you have to test and make sure all that data flows across all of it. And in my particular experience, I've, I've interacted with the motor controller, with many of the mechanisms. So the rope, the, you know, the, the, the actuators, the motors, motors that keep everything alive and moving. Uh, some uh, of the cameras, uh, some of the avionics, and also the helicopter system, including the, the part that's on the rover, as well as the helicopter itself. And, you know, along the lines of all of that, now I'm in the operations teams. Uh, I'm one of the mechanisms chairs. And back in April, when the helicopter was in its technical demonstration phase, I was also an operator for the helicopter. So I, I get to say and take this to my grave that I, I, I was the person that woke up the helicopter the day it took its, its first flight, uh, which was just uh, an incredible honor. And the mission overall has been doing very well. And we're just starting with the science. So uh, we have about a year and a half left of the primary mission. And obviously, we're super excited with everything to come. So let's get back to the helicopter. It was the first helicopter that ever was deployed outside of the of the Earth, right? As as a as a helicopter that was flying over Mars and doing some scanning and surveying the terrain. So tell us a little bit more about that. That's so exciting. Yeah, that's right. So it was more than anything at first. The technical demonstration phase of it was to prove that we can fly on Mars in the first place. Uh, Like you mentioned, this is something that had never been done. We had never flown a vehicle outside of Earth uh, in history. And we have ways of testing that here on Earth. We built a pressure chamber where you can pump down the atmosphere to match the Martian atmosphere. Um, you can stimulate Martian gravity by using pulley, a pulley system to assist the helicopter in flying because Mars gravity is less than here on Earth. So we can make the helicopter and the respective computers believe that it's flying on Martian gravity. Uh, but obviously, it's in space. So there was very limited kinds of testing that we could perform in that environment. First time we flew on Mars, the first night we survived on Mars, separated from the rover, was really the you know the first really big test that proved to us that we can use that kind of technology that the helicopter has. And then also, of course, that we can fly on Mars. Uh, that opens up the capabilities, the kind of architectures of missions we could send in the future. Because now you can imagine, instead of sending rovers, we may be able to deploy a helicopter, multiple helicopters. And ultimately, of course, when humans get to Mars, they'll be able to have these scouts uh, to help them explore the terrain. So We're very excited with what we've learned and what we continue to learn with ingenuity as now we've moved on to a scientific mission where the helicopter complements the rover. Um, and uh, things are working very well so far. So I remember when, when helicopter was deployed for the first time, everybody spoke about the speed of the propellers because they had to compensate for the, for the gravity or for the, for the density of the atmosphere, right? So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the propellers were designed um, to be as efficient as possible in Martian atmosphere. So the Martian atmosphere is about 1% of compared to the Earth's atmosphere. And, you know, the best, the best analogy when I talk about that with people is like, just imagine, right? You have, say, wind flowing. You know, wind flows at 30 miles per hour. 
but then now you put your hand between then and then water flowing at 30 miles per hour. And you know, water is obviously denser. It's a quote unquote, let's call it thicker for all intents and purposes. Water will push a lot harder. So then obviously those are two different kind of fluids. Think of that kind of scaling when you get to Mars. There's even less atmosphere than what it is here. So we were able to, we, we have less air to push, less air to create lift. So to compensate for that, what you have to do is uh, basically spin a lot faster than you would on Earth. And that means you're using more energy because the motor has to spin for longer periods of time, faster at faster rates. However, it's also designed structurally to be very, very thin because we want this helicopter to be as light as possible. And with all these things and other challenges, because Mars is also cold, um, we were able to make sure that it flew for the first time, that those design um, uh, decisions we had taken uh, regarding that atmospheric composition were as, you know, as best as possible to give us efficient flights. And so far, we're pushing the envelopes of those flights every time, going faster, going further, going higher. Um, and we're, we're learning that the helicopter was designed very well for all of these different constraints. So if you have to describe a day of rover on Mars, yeah. what would you tell us about this? When does it start working? Is it working 24-7? Does it need to go into some resting period? Uh, how much data does it really send? Is it sending data constantly to you? Or there are intervals of the time where it stops sending data and works on something else? What's its schedule? Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. So things, things change a little bit as we move along across the mission. So when we landed on Mars on, in February, uh, for the sake of us being able to keep up with all of our initial checkouts, our health states, making sure we landed safely and that everything was um, nominal, we were commanding the rover every single day uh, at 9 a.m. local Mars time. What does that mean? Um, on Earth, obviously, our days are 24 hours. The Martian day, or a soul, as we call it, is 24 hours and 40 minutes. So you have those 40 minutes of difference every single day. What that means is that on Earth, then we have to add 40 minutes to our schedule every single day. And we were operating in what we called Mars time in order to meet that deadline of 9 a.m. local Mars time every morning. And uh, that on Earth translated to us basically shifting schedule every day. So today, for example, we would have started at 12 at noon. Tomorrow we would have started the day at 12.40. And you stack it that way uh, for, for, for all the planning that has to go into a single soul, soul's worth of activity. Um, and we were able to operate that way for a while. Obviously, that is very difficult for the humans. It is not a human-centered Uh, decision. It's a robot-centered uh, decision, and uh, it was obviously very tough for all of us. Uh, the entire team was extremely, uh, you know, working to the ground to make sure the ro you know, the rover was healthy, everything was operating as as nominally as possible, and we we lived that way for 60 something days. Um, and then eventually now we've realized the rover can survive on its own. It's designed to survive on its own. And the way it works, by the way, is yes, we uplink, we send commands to Mars once a day. And then depending on how much data we generate, we may need to have, uh, several, uh, passes with our orbiters. We have five orbiters that we use on Mars 
And those are not always constantly connected to the rover. So we have to time when an orbiter is going to be overhead to decide what data we want to send. What, what's more, you know, what has higher priority than other pieces of information? And we have to play with those numbers for us to be able to determine whether the rover is healthy and if we're collecting the scientific data that we want. So there's a lot of that that we play. Um, and every day is different. Hopefully this is all making sense. <laughs> Absolutely it does. So, so very graphic. So if I had graphics, it helped, but you know. Uh, oh, well, it is thank, thank you so much for that explanation. And when you talk about data, how much data do you do you receive from Mars, and how quickly does it travel? Great question. Um, you know, depending on the day, we generate X amount of data. But um, you know, at most, I think one of our orbiters just gives us more. You know, about a gigabyte worth of data. Uh, so we have to prioritize what we want, and we we're, we can generate all kinds of data. But again, we only want to transmit what's important. So depending on what orbiters and what kind of information we're generating, um, I think it's about a little bit more than a gigabyte worth of data that we transmit from Mars to the ground here on Earth. And now, depending where we are in orbit, right, and both planets are uh, moving around, the, the data one way can take between 6 to 20 minutes. So... Um, depending how close we are to Mars, that's about the latency that we work with, right? And we're not always connected with the rover, so it takes about that much uh, time for the data to travel to Mars and then also from Mars to Earth. This is terrific. So let's shift our gears a little bit. Like, you know, you were born in Ecuador. You, you spoke a little bit about that. You grew up in New York? In Puerto and, Rico. In Puerto Rico, too. So I was just thinking about ideas of... Uh, what is the role of diversity inclusion in the in the U.S. space program? Yeah, so it is increasingly important. I think um, as the United States population is diversifying by the year, uh, by 2050, it's you know the composition of the country is going to be very different than what it is today. Um, many organizations, including NASA, are also trying to improve the parity to match the population, right? And I think that becomes very important because with many of us that come from minorities, underrepresented groups where resources haven't always been there, us putting our face, our voices out in platforms like this one um, tells our people that there are opportunities out there for you to prepare for, uh, for you to go after, and uh, for you to provide your input and bring your ideas. I think uh, JPL in particular, where, where I'm... You know where I'm at. The reason I stayed at JPL, I had a few internships throughout my undergrad. Uh, JPL itself is a pretty diverse environment. You know, many times, and this is very rare in engineering. I'm I've been the only man in the room. Uh, I have been one of many different kinds of brown people, uh, and that's not something I experience in other uh, aerospace companies. So NASA JPL definitely makes an effort. Uh, to recruit diverse, uh, a whole diverse workforce. And I think it's really important because it, it just generates great discussion. People with different ideas and different backgrounds uh, provide uh, incredible inputs to all kinds of projects. So uh, very excited for what's to come. And I'm just hoping more people join. Elio, what is your advice for the future space researchers? Advice for them. General advice I give folks, um, surround yourself by people that push you. And similarly, whenever you can lend a hand, do so. 
uh, as we progress in such a technology, you know, technologically driven uh, environment, what ultimately is going to put people in really great places are those people skills. Uh, being able to communicate with each other and empathize, I think, is critical. Uh, and you can't learn that in school. You only learn that by interacting with people. So go out there and pursue leadership positions, hands-on projects that force you to work with others. I think that's really important. Um, and whatever passion it is, right? Like if it was up to me, I'd want everybody to become an engineer. Uh, but whatever the passion is, uh, whatever whatever dreams people have, you have to assert your discipline. There's uh, You have to develop that expertise. And, and you know how to do that on your own. Uh, but put in the work because it'll pay off. And definitely along with that, though, uh, take care of yourself. Mental health is really important. So uh, those are my two pieces of advice. Elio, what's next for you? Great question. I uh, am in the scientific mission. I am working the Mars rover for now and uh, keeping my options open for a few years when that's done. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope whenever you're in this neighborhood, you come over and visit us in Miami. Would love to, uh, for sure would love to. I, I, I feel like I need to explore a little bit more uh, Miami. I've only been there for very short for like conferences and stuff. I haven't actually properly explored. So yeah, hopefully soon. I'll let you know. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you so much.